Hello and welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy. I'm Chris North and what you're about to listen to was originally broadcast as part of Pythagoras' Trousers, a science and engineering show on Radio Cardiff. You can find a full show and listen to past episodes at pythagorastrousers.co.uk. But for now, here's this month's astronomy. Well, this month I want to run through the results from a mission that's been orbiting the planet Mercury. It's the closest planet to the Sun, it's the smallest planet in the solar system, and seemingly, on the face of it, perhaps a boring world. But but the messenger probe that's been orbiting the planet for the past four years shows that that's not the case. Messenger launched in August 2004 and spent seven years getting to Mercury, passing by the Earth, Venus and Mercury to gradually slow it down so it could enter orbit in March 2011. Over time, it's used up all of its fuel and on the 30th of April 2015, so by the time you're listening to this, this may already have happened, Messenger will crash into the surface of Mercury, leaving an indelible mark that will never be removed. To find out more about what Messenger's told us about Mercury and what there's still left to discover, I'm joined by Professor Dave Rothery from the Open University. So welcome to the programme, Dave. Hi, Chris. So the Messenger probe has been studying Mercury for four years. What were the questions that Messenger was trying to answer four years ago? Well, we'd, we'd had one mission to Mercury before, which was Mariner 10, which flew past Mercury three times back in the uh, 1970s, but only saw half the planet because each time it flew past, the same half the planet was lit up by the sun. So we'd, we didn't know what was on the other side and how representative what we'd seen was. And we hadn't seen it in great detail from Mariner 10. So we wanted to see the rest of the planet and to understand how its surface had been formed. There were some smooth areas where the ancient craters had clearly been hidden by some process, but it wasn't clear from Mariner 10 whether they were buried by lava flows or buried by ejector flung out from later impacts. So that was a question which we didn't know. Um, Mariner 10 had seen evidence of global contraction. There are scarps running across the surface, they're known as lobate scarps, for the expression of thrusts where parts of the crust have been thrust over the, the adjacent crust. We didn't know how what the extent of these thrusts were globally and the, on the basis of Mariner 10 we thought the globe had contracted by about two kilometres. This is just thermal contraction as it cools down. Um, we now know from uh, messenger but the global contraction is about seven kilometers in radius when it's contracted so that's a lot more contraction because we've seen a lot more of these lobate scarps so there was a whole suite of questions which messenger had to answer and the magnetic field when mariner 10 flew by to everybody's surprise it discovered that mercury generates its own magnetic field and you might think a magnetic field is part and parcel of being a planet i mean the earth has a magnetic field but the moon doesn't mars doesn't venus doesn't we didn't expect a small body like Mercury to have a magnetic field. And to get a magnetic field, you don't just need iron in the middle. You need iron that's molten and in motion to generate a field by some kind of dynamo process. Mercury's outer core must be molten to generate this magnetic field. And we've learnt a lot more about that since we got messenger there. And, and that's surprising because, as you say, a small body like Mercury, uh, so it's only a few thousand kilometres uh, across so, so it has, it, as you say, it kind of has no reason to have all these uh, these big planet properties that we, we associate with planets like the Earth. No, it, it was a surprise, but we, we already knew that Mercury is a dense body. It's actually got about the same density as the Earth, which sounds pretty unremarkable, till you take into account its much smaller size. 
therefore it's lower gravity so the compression the self-compression in its interior is much less and to account for mercury's density its metal core largely iron must occupy about 80 percent of its radius that's a much much bigger core relative to planet size than any other rocky planet has so it's got a lot of iron and there must be something like sulfur in it to keep the outer part molten if it was pure iron or pure nickel iron it would have solidified but if you look at the amount of heat being generated by radioactive processes you can keep the outer part molten if you mix in some sulfur or something like that to to reduce the melting temperature. It's sulfur in the Earth's outer core as well, we think, which keeps the Earth's outer core fluid. The obvious way to give yourself um, a rocky planet, which has got a, a relatively large core, and the corollary of that relatively thin rocky outer shell, is that it started like a normal rocky planet, but lost most of its rock. So you hit the, um, the protoplanet of Mercury with some big, you can strip away the outer rocky layers and leave an impoverished rocky shell surrounding the core, which has been unaffected, so the core is relatively much bigger compared to the rock when you started with. That was an original idea, an early idea, but that's that's been ruled out. Yeah, that's gone. And, and one of the reasons that's gone is because that, that would imply that the surface would therefore have been heated an awful lot. And we know from messenger observation that that's not the case. How, how does messenger tell us just by looking at the surface of a planet whether it's been heated up what messenger has showed us is that the surface of mercury contains a lot of volatile substances um there's a lot of sulfur there there's two to five percent sulfur wherever you look it varies from about two to about five percent sulfur across the surface and sulfur is a volatile element which would be lost in the heat and violence of a, of a big collision there's also a lot of potassium and sodium there. Those are metals which shouldn't survive the heat and violence of a big collision. So the surface of Mercury is enriched in volatile substances. And that's very hard to reconcile with a big impact stripping away the outer layers because the sulfur, a lot of the sodium, a lot of the potassium should have gone. And, and these volatile elements are just those that, that, that will have been stripped away by getting hot, by being heated up. They, they will have... Uh, reacted and, and disappeared off the surface. That's the idea, right? Yeah, yeah, volatile means different things to different people. It, it, it can just mean stuff that will evaporate very easily, or it can mean stuff whose chemical bonds with other elements are broken very easily by, uh, by, 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 by temperature, basically. So the things that would be lost if it got very hot are still there on Mercury in perplexingly large amounts. So if Mercury wasn't hit by a large object to give it this relatively large core, uh, how, wh why does it have a large core? Has, have we able to answer that from Messenger yet? We're getting there. But there was another theory which is also no longer tenable, which was that just when Mercury formed so close to the Sun, it was always too hot for volatile elements to condense in the first place. And that would explain a large core and only a small amount of rock accreted around it but that doesn't work either because of the volatiles which messenger has found so um we are to some extent flummoxed by by mercury's surprising volatile richness there are, there are two ways around this one is that well mercury didn't form where we see it now it could have wandered in from further out in the solar system and been even richer in volatiles than it now is before whatever happened to strip it of, of, of most of its rock. 
And we do know that planets can wander about, certainly in the early stages of planetary system formation, we've seen exoplanets, planets around other stars, which have crept in much closer to their stars than they could feasibly have formed. So maybe there was some inward migration of what is now Mercury early in our own solar system's history. And allied to that, um, a paper that was published in the journal Nature um, late last year was suggesting that um, there was a giant impact affecting Mercury, but that Mercury is not the target of this giant impact with its outer part stripped away. Mercury is the giant impactor. Mercury could have hit the Earth or Venus and bounced away from it. And in the process, it would have lost a lot of its rocky shell, but wouldn't have preferentially lost its volatiles. So you can have an impact to strip away a lot of rock, but not strip away the volatiles to such a great extent and use that to account for Mercury's large core, thin rocky crust and mantle, and still a large load of volatiles. It's, it's a lot of special pleading you have to go through to, to make this model work, but migrating inwards from elsewhere in the solar system and not being the target of an impact, but being the impactor itself. It's called the hit and run impact. That's a nice phrase. That could be Mercury's origin. But to be honest, we're, we're, we're still flummoxed. It is a very surprising planet. It, it certainly is. And one of the other things that the Messenger's done is to study its, its surface. And it, it found some very odd features on its surface. You mentioned at the start that there were these smooth regions that could have been from volcanic uh, volcanic lava filling craters, or it could have been from, from ejecta, from stuff thrown up from, from other impacts that settled and, and filled these craters. And, and Messenger has answered that question and tells us that, that Mercury is surprisingly, uh, or was surprisingly geologically active. Yeah, Messenger nailed that one fa fairly easily, the, or fairly early rather. The, the smooth plains are pretty obviously lava flows. Now we have the detail and the global views that we've had from Messenger. You can see, um, and there are craters all over Mercury, but the smooth areas, many of the craters have been buried and are just beginning to reappear. Imagine you've got a cratered surface and lava spreads across it, burying the craters. As the lava cools, it will contract and also lose gas and so the surface will subside. And if you flooded a crater, the rim of the crater can just begin to re-express itself as the lava subsides. And these are called ghost craters. And we see them all over the place. And um, it's now pretty clear that the smooth areas on Mercury were flooded by lavas. And we know that the more heavily cratered areas on Mercury are pretty similar in composition to the smooth areas. And we can see um, less well-preserved ghost craters amongst the, the heavier cratering on top of the surface. And everywhere we look on Mercury seems to have been caused by volcanic flooding. It's not like the moon where we have lavas flooding the dark areas, the lunar maria, but the brighter areas, the lunar highlands, are not volcanic. Um, that's not the case on Mercury. Everywhere we look on Mercury is volcanic lavas. So that's become fairly clear from the compositional analyses and the detailed images we've got from Mercury, from, uh, thanks to Messenger. But the lava flows, by and large, seem to be more than about 3 billion years old. This all went on a long time ago. But there are volcanic processes that have happened more recently than the lava flooding. And um, these are related to explosive volcanism. You can see 
volcanic vents on the surface, punching up through the lavas, very often punching up through the floors of, of impact craters, which are surrounded by slightly reddish deposits that can extend more than 100 kilometres from the volcanic vent, which have, seems to have been erupted by explosive volcanism. They don't build up a big volcano around the vent, it's just a, a spreading out of stuff that's been thrown skywards and fallen back under gravity. And, and the important point in terms of Mercury's nature is that to have an explosive volcanic eruption, you've got to have a lot of gas in the magma. So whatever's rising has got some gas. And we don't know what the gas is. It could be carbon dioxide, unlikely to be water vapour, unlikely to be methane, could be sulphur, could be chlorine, but some gas. And the gas is a volatile substance which should be lost in collisions and so on. So the fact that we see Mercury having explosive volcanic eruptions is another line of evidence, but it's a volatile, rich planet. So again, it's the strangeness of Mercury's composition, which is still needing to be fully explained. And, and how recently were these explosive uh, volcanic eruptions? Well, work that I've done in association with Becca Thomas, one of my PhD students, has, has shown um, surprisingly young explosive volcanic vents. Some are clearly ancient, but we've got an example where we've got a pretty fresh-looking impact crater. It's the freshest morphological class of crater, because craters, as they age, degrade. They get smoothed off by smaller impacts, rounding off the corners and so on. We've got a pretty fresh crater, and up through the terracing inside the crater, punches a volcanic vent, which is spread out a pyroclastic deposit, an explosion deposit. So that volcanic vent has to be younger than the crater that it punches through. And that impact crater, by most standards, is a billion years old. So we've got less than a billion years old explosive uh, volcanic eruptions in at least one site. So I would think the explosive volcanic eruptions were far more common three, million, three billion years ago, and they've tailed off over time. The youngest one we can demonstrate is less than a billion years old. They've probably stopped, but may not have stopped completely. So who knows, one day if we get another mission to Mercury, then we might start to see the surface exploding in, in mini eruptions, which would, be, uh, which would be quite good fun. That would be nice. Well, we do have another mission to Mercury. There's the European Space Agency's Bepi Colombo mission uh, that I'm involved in, that will get to Mercury in 2024. We don't expect to see major changes since uh, Messenger, but we might see a few subtle changes. It'll be interesting over that short time scale, which is going to be about about a decade, to to see whether the, how well, how many new impact craters there are. I suppose. I mean, as you say, there probably aren't many, but establishing that number is presumably useful for for uh, gauging impact cratering rates on Mercury and throughout the solar system. It would be very useful to be able to do that. I mean, I was um, trying to be careful when I was saying how old the but the lava planes are on Mercury because we, we, we estimate the ages of planetary surfaces by counting the number of impact craters that have formed. Now, the more impact craters, the older the surface. That's fairly obvious, but we're unsure of the rate of impact. So if we can measure the present day rate of impacts, which will be on the basis of small craters because big impacts are very rare, that at least gives us something quantifiable that we can try and extrapolate. Uh, back into the past. Now, Messenger's high-resolution imaging is quite limited in scope. It's not being close to the surface 
of a, a sufficiently large part of a surface to show us craters only a few meters across, which is what you need to get the present day rate of cratering. But we'll, we'll have a go at estimating the rate of cratering by looking at changes between what Messenger has seen and what BepiColombo has seen. I mean, it works on Mars. There are new impact craters seen on Mars or new impact craters seen on the Moon. Now we have really high resolution images in orbit. And we'll, we're going to try to do this on Mercury. I mean, the, uh, one crater that we want to spot is the crater that Messenger will leave on the surface when it hits the surface, which is meant to be round about 30th of April. So by the time people hear this, it might already have crashed. And, and, and that's just because it, it's run out of fuel. And, and you would think a spacecraft in orbit around an airless body would uh, would just stay in orbit. There's nothing to, to drag it down, seemingly. But, but what, what is causing Mercury's orbit to decay, apart from its, its thrusters firing? Yeah, I used to think orbits were stable, and when I was a lad, I was screaming at the television set watching Star Trek when I said, Captain, our orbit's decaying, and we've got to get the thrusters back online. But it's 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 not the case that orbits go on forever, because there are external influences. In the case of Messenger orbiting very close to Mercury over its northern hemisphere and a long way away over its southern hemisphere, it experiences the slight asymmetry in Mercury's gravity field. Mercury's not exactly spherically symmetrical, so there are asymmetries in the gravitational pull. And there's also um, the effect of the Sun's gravity, and in the past two years, the combined effect of those processes has been to reduce the low point of Messenger's orbit. It used to be between two and 400 kilometers above the surface, and it began to drift lower, and they used to they were using its precious hydrazine fuel to boost it back up every so often. Um, in March this year, they used the last of the hydrazine, and that was going to be the end of the mission. It was going to drift down until it hit the surface. Then they realized, hang on, the way we get our hydrazine to the nozzles is to push it there with some helium gas. Let's vent the helium gas now and give ourselves just a little boost from just venting out the helium. And there have been two ventings of helium to give it a remaining little kick to get back up. It's been as low as five kilometers a few times before being boosted back up. Now there's no even helium to vent, and it's going to just plow into the surface, or will have done by now, at about four kilometers a second. That's 9,000 miles an hour. So we'll have a crater several meters across which we hope to be able to see when Bepi Colombo gets there. And are we still getting data from Messenger? I mean, it's still got batteries and solar panels and so on. So are we getting data from these really low altitudes? Because those must be stunning views. We are. Uh, Mercury went um, into solar conjunction. It was lined up with the sun um, earlier this month. Um, round about the 20th, it came sufficiently far from the sun that we could get a signal from Messenger again. And yes, there have been close-up pictures uh, from Mercury back to the Earth. There'll be no data from Messenger while it crashes onto the surface. That's going to happen on the far side of the globe as seen from the Earth, so there's no line of sight transmission. So um, we're not going to get a picture from 100 metres away before it ploughs into the surface, sadly. The last we will get will be when it goes out of sight over the, over the limb of Mercury heading towards its crash. 
Okay, so we won't know exactly where it's where it's come down. So the the only solution, therefore, is as you say, we send Beppy Colombo there to look for it, and and then we send another mission in the future to go and land and and pick up the hard drive. <laughs> the hard drive is going to be in bits at four kilometres yeah. a second, <laughs> but there'll be, there'll be nothing left. But but it's quite a challenge for Beppy Colombo to spot this crater. It will be only a few metres across. And there are lots of young craters a few metres across. You recognise young craters because the ejector is still fairly bright. It hasn't been space weathered and faded into the background. But without a detailed picture of the crash site from Messenger before its crash, we won't have a before and after to compare. So it's difficult to spot a tiny uh, new crater if you don't have a picture from before it was formed to compare with when after it was formed. But we're going to try because it will be uh, a useful test of how quickly Mercury's surface darkens with age. There's a couple of other things that, that uh, spiked my interest in, in what Messenger's been doing. One is, you mentioned these these volcanic deposits in, in craters. There's been uh, interesting hollows found in the in the surface of those. Are those related to the volcanic explo- the explosive volcanism or are they something different? Now, I'm glad you asked me about hollows because hollows are a process which we think is occurring today. And if we do see any changes on Mercury's surface, apart from some new impact craters, we might see some changes in the hollows. Now, what the hollows are, um, they're patches of surface where um, the top 10, 20, 30 metres of surface material has somehow been removed and the hollow is a steep-sided flat bottom depression. Uh, the hollows are young, you don't see impact craters on their floors. We're not sure what, what speed the walls of the hollows are receding, but we will look for changes between what Messenger has seen and what Beppe Colombo will see uh, a decade later. And how the hollows form, again, is a bit of a mystery. It's more evidence that there's something volatile in Mercury's surface. Because to remove a material, how can you do it? Well, there's no air on Mercury. There's no wind to blow stuff away. Um, there are no f- fluids flowing. There are no channels leading out of hollows. So the stuff hasn't flowed away somehow. Has the, the surface fallen into some underground cavern? Well, it doesn't look like it because it's a flat bottom, not sort of hourglass shaped that you'd get if stuff was falling through a hole. It looks very much as if the material is being volatilized, turning to vapor somehow. Now, that's either because it gets hot or it's because um, solar wind particles break chemical bonds. But however you do it, there's something volatile in the surface. Um, And we didn't know about hollows until uh, Messenger got there. That was another of Messenger's great discoveries. Um, And are they related to volcanism? Well, given that we don't know what the volatile phase is forming the gas that drives explosive volcanism and we don't know what the volatile is that's being removed to form the hollows we, we can't form an obvious relationship between them but we do know that around the rims of some volcanic vents we see hollows forming so there's some kind of relationship between hollows and volcanic vents but hollows are a much smaller scale feature than the volcanic vents these volcanic vents are tens of kilometres across, and the deepest one is about four kilometres deep. That's deeper than the Grand Canyon. You could stand on the rim of one of Mercury's volcanic vents. It would be a staggering sight. Well, it certainly would. It's a, it's a remarkable planet for something uh, so small. And the, the, the last thing I'd like to, to ask you about is, is something that came as a, 
a bit of a surprise to, to a lot of us, uh, the idea that there's water on Mercury, or not water, but water ice. It's so close to the sun, it's, it's hundreds of degrees uh, centigrade in, in terms of temperature. So w- what's it doing having water ice on its surface? Well, you're quite right. I mean, the noontime temperature is 400 degrees. I mean, it gets very, very cold at night. Um, but there are places on the globe near the poles which never see the sun because Mercury's axis is not tilted to its orbit. And so impact craters near the poles have shadowed floors where direct sunlight never reaches. So if you can get some ice, water ice, onto the floor of an impact crater, there's nothing to... Um, uh, to make it evaporate or to melt or to you know, sublime away to vapour. And it's the same story as the ice in the permanently shadowed regions of, of lunar craters, basically. We think the water ice is delivered by comets, and a large fraction of the craters on Mercury are going to be formed by comets, icy bodies rather than asteroids, rocky bodies hitting the surface. So what happens when the comet hits the surface? It makes a crater, but the cometary ice vaporises, and those vaporized molecules will bounce around on the surface of mercury till they escape to space now if a water molecule hits a surface at 400 degrees it will bounce off that surface it won't stick and eventually if it keeps doing that eventually it's going to wander away into space but if a water molecule happens to hit a surface at minus 150 centigrade inside a shadow it will stick to that surface now if that area then warms up because the sun rises over it that might that water molecule will be lost. But if it happens to be sitting in a 150, minus 150 degree centigrade shadow, that's a permanent shadow, it will stay there forever. And gradually it will be joined by other water molecules. So it wouldn't be stable anywhere on Mercury's surface except in these permanently shadowed craters near the poles. Well, Mercury really is a fascinating planet, and we look forward to more results from Messenger's data and then the arrival of Bepi Colombo in about a decade's time. So uh, don't hold your breath, maybe. Dave, thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. But of course, you don't need a spacecraft to go and observe Mercury. It's up in the sky right now. So uh, joining me is Hugh Lang again from Cardiff University. Hi, Chris. We can go and see Mercury. That's right. This this month, 1st of May, it's, uh, at, well, between the 1st of May and the 19th of May is the best time of the year to actually look for Mercury. It'll be in the uh, western northwest from the 1st of May and should be around till about the 19th of May. So that's going to uh, be low, low, in, low above the horizon. It will be quite low to the horizon, that's right. Hopefully, mm. if you have a clear horizon, you should see it. It's, a, it's not that bright. It's about magnitude 2, for those who know what a magnitude is. Uh, but it should, be, it should be possibly visible because it'll be close to the Pleiades M45, uh, at the first of the month, uh, I think it's about three moon diameters away, or it's about one and a half degrees. So you've got a, a flat west northwestern horizon and clear skies at sunset. Then for about an hour afterwards, Mercury will just be sitting there in the, above the horizon. That's right. Other planets, Venus, of course, very bright at the moment. It's a searchlight in the sky. You can't possibly fail to miss it at about 40 or 50 degrees elevation at the moment. Its magnitude is minus 4.2, and its apparent size is increasing in actual fact. But even though it's increasing, its phase is decreasing. Well, that is, its side is actually getting smaller, so it doesn't actually get very much brighter. On the 9th of May, it'll be about three moon diameters, again, one and a half degrees, north of the open cluster M35 in Gemini, which uh, would be worth looking out for. It is naked eye, but only just. Okay, so so if you've got a, if you've got clear skies on the 9th of May, go and look for the a small cluster of stars uh, not right. too far from Venus. So it should easily be visible in binoculars. Oh, easily visible in binoculars. That's right, and uh, by naked eye from a dark site. 
Then moving on, of course, we have Jupiter, the king of the planets, who's been up for quite some time now. This is probably the last decent month. So if you actually want to look at the planet, do it, because by the end of the month, it'll be in the in the murky atmosphere close to the horizon, and that'll be it for another six months or so. Okay, so now's the time to go and observe Jupiter before it disappears. If you haven't already. And of course, Saturn uh, will be another planet that's up. Um, it's actually reaching opposition on May the 23rd, so it'll be up all night. So that's where it's opposite the sun in the sky, so that's it rises correct. at sunset, sets that's at right. sunrise. And obviously nearest to the Earth as well. Now, one or two interesting things you can look for, for at Saturn. Uh, I should actually say Saturn actually, unfortunately, never rises very high above the horizon, no more than 18 to 20 degrees, which means it's always in the work. So it's not, it's not the most favourable opposition. But however, we, can, we have an effect called the ceiling effect, um, um, which happens around opposite, a few days either side of opposition. And what actually happens is, for those with telescopes, should actually see the, the rings uh, brighten. And the reason for that is simply because that the dust particles in the rings are, are actually shading the shadow. So you only actually see the bright side. So you get an apparent increase in brightness on Saturn's rings. Because you can't see any of those darker shadows that's of the yeah. dust particles. So that's it for the planets. But we can also observe uh, particular clouds back here on Earth. That's right. Noctilucent cloud season again. These clouds reside somewhere between 75 and 120 kilometres. Of course, up there we have very, very fine, probably meteoritic dust. And any water vapour then can condenses on those on those uh, bits of dust of course uh, and become highly reflective and so you get up in the north unfortunately they are tended to be northern clouds uh, uh, electroluminescent blue cloud is probably the best way to describe them they are quite eerie and well worth looking for uh, you need to observe them maybe about 120 minutes after sunset in the in in the west and then about the same time in the morning in the east, so they actually do lead and lag the, the sunrise. They are well worth looking at. Of course, with a volcanic eruption, of course, we don't know how much dust is in the atmosphere, so we could get some really good uh, noctilucent uh, clouds occurring sometime during this year, during the noctilucent cloud season. And that's for the next couple of months, essentially. That's right, between May and August, effectively. Okay, well, that's something uh, certain to look out for, and you can take some beautiful photos of noctilucent clouds, or indeed the planets. That's correct. Hugh, thanks very much. Thanks very much, Chris. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. It was originally broadcast on Radio Cardiff as part of Pythagoras' Trousers.